And we're still looking at the subject of how to get along with other people, how to get along with other people, how to get along with people that may be a little bit different or a lot different than you and have different perspectives on life. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And I'd invite you to pull out those message notes and just follow along. Don and uh, Anthony are gone this weekend, so there will not be any overhead message notes, but uh, you can follow along with them in the um, bulletin message note insert. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And I'd like to say that it's really good to see um, Dennis and Marcia Sams with us today. And we've been praying for Marcia. And, and then uh, my youngest son, Chris, is with us this morning. Just wave your hand, Chris, right between Grandpa Bill and Marcia. Great to have our youngest son with us. Picked him up in Boise yesterday in the middle of that thunderstorm and had a nice time, nice trip. Let's pray together. Lord, I'm asking this morning that you would help me to make your word applicable to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, I, I've heard people say over the years that I wish that we had a New Testament church. Have you ever heard anybody say that? I wish I had a New Testament church. And my response to that is, I always say tongue-in-cheek, which church do you want? Do you want the church at Smyrna that was involved in sexual immorality? Would you like the church at Ephesus that lost their first love? Or would you like the church at Corinth that had conflicts between members, between the rich and poor, rejection of their spiritual leaders, or misuse of spiritual gifts? Which New Testament church would you want? In, in truth, the New Testament church was filled full of problems. The New Testament church was absolutely filled full of problems, especially the Corinthian church. They just did not know how to treat each other. They just did not know how to get along with one another. And, and it happens even today. A number of years ago, I read about two Christian congregations that were located close to one another in a very, very small community. They thought it might be better if they merged the two churches in a united, more effective group rather than two struggling churches. However, they couldn't pull it off. They could not pull off this merger of the two churches. And the problem is, is that they had a problem with how to recite the Lord's Prayer. How to recite the Lord's Prayer. One group wanted forgive us of our trespasses and the other group wanted forgive us of our debts. And this is a true story. The newspaper of that little local community reported that one church went back to its trespasses and the other church went back to its debts. <laughs> I just can't believe it. I hear stories like that and I shake my head. But wherever I've gone, wherever I've gone, no matter the size of the community, large communities, small communities, different denominations, many different denominations, mainline churches, evangelical churches, charismatic churches. Uh, they have some of the same problems. They have the, some of the same problems. You would think that by becoming a Christian, people would know how to automatically get along with others, but this just isn't so. So what are we to do? Are we to throw in the towel in the church? Are we to go from church to church trying to find the perfect church? Uh, uh, no. The answer is absolutely no. In fact, we're not to give up on the church. We're not to give up on the church. 
The church is God's idea. And the, the Apostle Paul did not give up on the Corinthian church. He had confidence in the New Testament church, especially this Corinthian church, that it could be a healthy, mature church despite their hardships. So take courage. There is hope for the church today. Now this past week, in the Ben Bulletin, maybe it was two weeks ago, I read of a lady that found her wedding ring after being lost a number of years via her dog. Via her dog. Evidently, a few years ago, her dog has swallowed her wedding ring and somehow it got stuck somewhere in the throat. And a veterinarian, after the dog got sick, helped this dog get this ring out of its throat area after he discovered it there. And after a thorough cleaning, it's like brand new. She rediscovered her brand new ring, so to speak. Now, sometimes we think, sometimes we think that we lose things of lasting value, but perhaps it was really there all the time. We just need to rediscover it. And the Apostle Paul wants the Corinthian church, despite all of their differences, to rediscover the immense value of treating people in a genuine, loving, kind, and compassionate way. To rediscover what we would call agape love. Now, let's just review a little bit. A couple of weeks ago, in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I plead with you. He says, I, I plead with you. Paul says, in my paraphrase, would you go the extra mile? Would you accept people who are a little different than you? Would you give them grace? Would you turn the other cheek? Would you forgive people who hurt you? Would you forgive people who injure you? Would you get along uh, agreeably with those people who you disagree with? Would you do these things? And last week in chapter 3, we saw that he said, he said, I started where you were at. Like a newborn baby, I couldn't feed you solid milk, uh, excuse me, solid food. I, I, you, you were on uh, milk, so to speak, because you weren't ready for solid foods. And we said that, you know, Christians in today's world, when they become Christians, we don't expect a baby Christian to know all about theology. We don't expect them to know about, all about eschatology or pneumology or soteriology or hardiology. We don't expect them to know these particular things. But in the context, what Paul was talking about here is, he said, I don't expect you as a baby Christian to know all about theology and all about the doctrines of the Christian faith. But I do expect you, the context tells us, to know the basics of how to get along with people that are often different and have different opinions than you do. When it comes to relationships and the treatment of others, Paul indicates, I expect more out of you. Quit treating each other, he says in chapter 3, those three verses, he says, quit treating each other in a carnal or worldly way. In fact, he uses that phrase three times in the NIV translation and four times in the King James Version because the context tells us in the world, people often quarrel and they argue, they're critical and they gossip and they're envious and they're jealous, but this is not, this is not the Christian way. This is not the Christian way. But how? How do you disagree agreeably? 
Well, I want to review very quickly the seven steps that we talked about how to resolve conflict from last Sunday. But I want to preface again these seven steps by saying this. By saying this. The foundation of all conflict resolution must be bathed in genuine agape love. It has to be bathed in genuine agape love. So many people say, you know, sure, I'll love you as long as you agree with me. I'll love you as long as you agree with me. I, I love you, I'll, I'll love you just as long as you dress like me. Just as long as you fit into my socio-economic and political world. No. We're to love people with Jesus' love, whether they're clean or sober, whether they're strung out on drugs or whether they're not, whether they are Republicans or Democrats or Independents, whether or not they're Baptists, Methodists, Lutherans, Charismatics, whether or not they're Duck fans or Beaver fans, whether or not they're the Seattle Seahawks fans or the 49er fans. Come on, amen? <laughs> Come on now. I don't have to agree with you, and I don't have to agree on every single tit or title. I don't have to meet with you eye to eye on everything for us to get along. I don't have to do that. And we can disagree agreeably. And that genuine agape love has to be the foundation for all conflict resolution. So let's quickly review the seven steps for conflict resolution. Very, very quickly here. Okay, number one. Realize that conflict is inevitable. We should seek after it. We should not go out of our way to seek for conflict. And the Bible says, really, we should stay away from people that really love conflict. We don't love conflict, but we, 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 we have to understand that conflict is inevitable. We don't seek it. However, we should not avoid it at all costs. You have opinions. I have opinions. We all have opinions. And we should be able to exp freely express those things. Number two, be honest and speak the truth in love. Be honest and speak the truth in love. If you have a problem with another pro person and you can't resolve it by talking about it, uh, I, I, I don't know. You, you know, you've got to go to the Lord in prayer. You've got to seek Him. And sometimes you can let things go, but sometimes you've got to go ahead and speak your mind. But two things are very, very important. Timing and tact. Timing and tact. Those of us who are married understand and realize that we don't have a major a conversation with our spouse right before dinner time. Why? Because our blood sugar is low. We understand that. Timing is so important. And, 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 and you know, we, we just have to understand this. And tact is so, so important. Number four. Uh, number three. Uh, identify the real problem. Is it hurt feelings? Is it feeling neglected? And then number four. Arrange to meet with a person face to face. Face to face, Jesus said in Matthew 18, 15, meet with the person in private. Don't go to a bunch of other people. Don't go to two or three other people. Don't go to another group of people. Go to the person and meet with them in private. And number five, affirm the relationship before you open up the agenda. Affirm the relationship before you open up the agenda. And you say something like, well, honey, I appreciate this about you if you're talking to your spouse about something and you can affirm them. Number six, Make observations rather than accusations. Make observations rather than accusations. And number seven, be willing to listen to the other person's point of view. Now, if you're going to go to a person and you're going to open up a conversation with them and you're going to talk about something that's bothering you, you should give them an opportunity to express their opinion. 
and an opportunity for them to tell you what they're feeling and what's happening in your life. It's just important to do that. Well, I want you to notice, let's go on here. In today's scripture, chapter 4, Paul continues his subject on how to treat others. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Specifically, he talks about how to treat spiritual leaders. He does. He talks about how to treat spiritual leaders and how spiritual leaders are to treat lay people. And we're going to look at that particular subject, how spiritual leaders are to treat lay people next Sunday. But uh, we want to focus on the first part of that. There seems to be a real problem in the Corinthian church. A real problem. People, for whatever reason, did not like the Apostle Paul's leadership. We don't know what's happening. We don't know what's going on. But for some reason, they were complaining about his leadership. And they are questioning his motives. Which is really difficult for me to believe because he was the founder, so to speak, with God's grace. He helped found the Corinthian church. He spent 18 months there as a part-time tip maker. Those were good and wonderful days. But things begin to unravel after he left. And so in chapter 1, verse 12, and in chapter 3, verses 4 through 5, we were introduced to this phraseology and this thinking. Some were saying, I follow Paul. Others were saying, I follow Apollos. And others were saying, I follow Cephas. And he repeats this three times. As I said, the chapter 1, chapter 2, and we'll see some of this also in chapter 4. Some people, again, in the Corinthian church, were questioning Paul's leadership and his motives, and they were arguing about church leadership. Now, in between the lines, I believe you can hear people say something like, who does this Apostle Paul think he is? Who put him in authority over us? He hasn't been trained in Greek philosophy. He hasn't been trained in Greek rhetoric. He's just a Jewish tent maker. Compared to Apollos and compared to Cephas, he's pretty dull. And, and he's not doing what we expect our leaders to do. How does Paul respond? I want you to look at chapter 4, verse 1 with me. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now, did you understand what he just said? Let's, let's look at it one more time. So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Paul, at the outset, kind of sets them straight, so to speak. He says, I'm a servant of Christ. He did not say, I'm your servant, or I'm the Corinthian church's servant, or I'm a leader of some sort of political party, or I'm a social uh, a president of some sort of social club, and I want to be in power as long as I please you and pat you on the back and make you happy. In fact, did you know that the Greek word for slave there is hyperetes, and it really meant a rower. How many of you remember the old Ben-Hur movie? It kind of dates us, doesn't it? But there's a particular scene when Ben-Hur is in the bottom of a boat and all of those Romans uh, slaves are rowing. And this is the word picture that we get. Somebody that's in the boat and is rowing and that's 
that staying in time and be with a certain certain cadence. What's, what is the Apostle Paul saying, Pastor Ron? He's saying, I'm rolling not to please you, not to please man, not to please any individual in the church, not because you like me, not because you dislike me, not because I have to be in control and I need the approval of other people, not because I was voted or elected this particular position, but bottom line, because Jesus is the captain. And I'm trying to stay in cadence with the person of Jesus. This is what he is saying. This is the whole context. I'm, I want to row where the Lord is leading me uh, to his cadence. Now, he's not saying that he's not accountable to other spiritual leaders and that you should never, as a spiritual leader, not be accountable to a group of individuals or people. He's just kind of putting things in context here. He's trying to say that I'm not a pastor and I'm not an apostle because I was elected to this position, but because God has called me and the most important person, or so to speak, the most important person in my life that I want to please is God and not man. This is what he's saying here to the Corinthian church. Let's go on. Now I want you to notice what he says in verses 2 and 3 here. Now, it is required that those who have been given the trust must prove themselves faithful. Verse 3, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. Verse 4, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Verse 5, therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in the darkness, and he will expose the, the motives of men's heart. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. In response to these people's criticism of, here, of him, and this is not in your message note outline. I didn't have enough room, but you can write this out in the margins. He says there are three judgments. There are three judgments. Number one, there is the judgment of man. We would agree that we have our peers judge us when we go and we've been accused of something in a court of law. So there's the judgment of man. Number two, he says, there is the judgment of ourselves. In fact, in verse four, he mentions the word conscience. There's the judgment of ourselves. And number three, he says, there is the judgment of God. There's the judgment of God. What is the Apostle Paul trying to say? You might ask. Well, in your message notes, again, you can write these out there, but they're not in there. I'm sorry, I couldn't fit them in. Number one, don't be. Please, do not be. I don't know how else to say it. Do not be so quick to judge other people and even spiritual leaders. Don't be so quick to judge other people. Because God is the only one that knows the intentions and the motives of the heart. Don't be so quick to judge other people. Now, we are to be fruit inspectors. And over a period of time, the Bible says that according to Galatians chapter 5, we can see the fruit, the evidence of that in, in people's lives. But often people are so, so quick to judge other people. Now, God is the final judge, and he knows the intentions, and he knows the motives of the heart. As human beings, uh, it happens we know that the children of Israel, remember, the first king that they chose, God allowed them to choose that king. 
and they used all the human standards. We read that King Saul was tall and he was handsome and he looked the part of an earthly king, but he was absolutely the worst king they could have chosen. Whereas God got to choose the second king of Israel, which was David, and he was a wet-behind-the-ears teenager at the time and he did not look the part, but God saw the intention of his heart. We cannot judge people and we don't know, the reason why is because we don't know the intentions and we don't know the motives and we don't have the full understanding of what's going on. And let me share you my favorite story. And I may have told this once before. This is a true story. It happened at the turn of the century. A lady was in the passenger of one of those cars being pulled by a steam locomotive. And she had a little toddler with her, her little boy. And that little toddler was being a nuisance. He was running up and down the aisles. He was stepping on people's shoes. He was yelling. He was screaming. He was just being a real pain in the rear. When all of a sudden, a man across the aisle from this lady said, Ma'am, ma'am, can't you control your little toddler, he stepped all over my boots. He's making a general nuisance of himself. He's yelling and he's screaming here. And she came out of her days with eyes reddened from tears. And she said, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. You see, my husband died just last week. And his body is in the coffin on the last railroad car. And we're bringing him back to his hometown to bury him. I'm so sorry. I'll make my son sit next to me. We just don't know unless we walked a mile in another person's shoes. Don't be so quick to judge. We don't know the intentions of the heart. We don't know all the stuff that's happening. Well, let's go on here. He gets even more specific. The Apostle Paul gets even more specific uh, about concerning spiritual leaders. I want you to notice what the Apostle Paul says in verse 6 with me. He uses a transitional statement. He says, Now, brothers, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, Do not go beyond what is written. Notice, then you will not take pride. Pride, isn't that interesting terminology? You will not take pride in one man against another. Now, he makes this transitional statement because in verses 1 through 5, he makes some general observations and then he gets more specific, uh, goes on to more specific things in verse 6. What does Apostle Paul want them to do? Well, he says it in verse 6. The Corinthian church were still comparing their leaders. Roman numeral number 2, point number 2, don't compare spiritual leaders. If you haven't realized that, don't do that. Because we're all tempted to do it. Because we all have favorite pastors. I'm sure, I'm sure there are many of you here, we just happen to have Pastor Sam's here this morning, that would say, he's one of my favorites. I'm absolutely positive of that. Now, some of you might say that the Pastor Dan was your absolute favorite or whatever. But it's important to understand that we never compare our spiritual leaders. You see, this is what was happening in the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church 
you might want to say, uh, uh, well, in fact, the last part of verse 6 with me, he says, don't take pride in one man against another. In other words, these Corinthians were comparing their pastors like you would compare different parts of an automobile or different features of an automobile. Well, you know, this pastor over here, he's, he's, a, he's, a, uh, he's a manual he has a manual transmission, and uh, he doesn't have cruise control, and, and, he, and he doesn't have AC. But my pastor, the pastor that I really like, he's got an automatic transmission, and, and he's got AC, and he's got cruise control, and he even has a Sears radio and a CD player. And the Apostle Paul says, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? Why are you taking pride? And it would be on that, and they were really rallying people, like a political rally. They were saying, you know, uh, Pastor Cephas, he's my man, he can do it, no one else can. No, no, my, my pastor is Paulus. Paulus is, oh, he can do it, no one else can. And no, no, Paul, he's a, he's a guy, he can do it, nobody else can. And they were rallying people together and uh, being some sort of political uh, thing as, as far as their spiritual leaders were concerned, and they were taking pride in this. Now, in one of my uh, pastors that I had, I was there about two weeks, and I was parked in the parking lot, and another man pulled up right beside me, and we were both waiting for our kids to get out of Wednesday night youth group. Our youth pastor went very long that night, got long-winded. So we were there waiting there forever. So I decided to get, engage this fellow in a conversation. I just met him once. So I got out of my vehicle, went on his side, and we had, were having a nice conversation. And then he said this. After small talk, he said, Pastor Ron, I want you to know. I want you to know. I was so disappointed when Pastor Bob left, the predecessor to me. I was so disappointed. In fact, when he read his resignation letter after being there 10 years, I got up in the middle of his resignation letter, stomped out angry, and slammed the back door of the church. I said, oh, oh I, I'm, I, I'm sorry that you, that happened and you feel that way. And I'd love to be your pastor. If you'd let me be your pastor, I, I'd, be, I'd be your pastor. And then I wanted to give him perspective. And I said, you know, a couple of weeks ago, when we resigned after being there 10 plus years, we had a number of people. They didn't get angry at us, but they didn't want to see us go either. And that's normal. You bond with a pastor. He marries you. He buries you. He baptizes you. He walks through the valley of the shadow of death with you. And that's normal. That is normal to feel that bond. And some of you would say, I have bonded with this pastor and he will always be my pastor. And other people say, well, he's my pastor, but I really haven't bonded with him. And that's just all part of it. We do have people that we bond with as pastors. And that's understandable. But the Corinthian church was taking these normal bonds of friendship and love way beyond and according to 6b, they were taking pride by pitting one spiritual leader over another spiritual leader, which led to the eventual put-down of a spiritual leader that wasn't their favorite, and rallying people like a political rally to their favorite. And I don't believe the Corinthian church set out to do this intentionally.
In fact, I want you to jump ahead with me to verse 17. And I want you to look at what he says there. For this reason, I am sending to you Timothy. For this reason, all of these reasons and more, my son whom I love, he is faithful in the Lord. Notice, he will remind you. He will remind you of my way of life in Jesus Christ, which agrees with what I teach everyone in every church. Did you hear that? He said, I want to remind you. The context is, it's because you've forgotten. You've forgotten some of these things. You see, most people in the church never set out to disrespect their spiritual leaders. Most people uh, begin over a period of time to compare their spiritual leaders, to fight and quarrel over spiritual leaders, to be critical and put down their spiritual leaders. They just forget. You say, what do they forget, Pastor Ron? What do they forget? Well, what do the Corinthian church need to be reminded of? Look at verses 7 and 8 with me. He goes on here. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you receive that you did not receive? And if you did not receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings. And that without us. Listen, I think it's important for the church to understand this. Do remember that everything that you have, spiritually speaking, listen, Everything that you have, spiritually speaking, has come through people, pastors, teachers, who have sacrificed themselves on your part, down through church history to the present. We're standing on the shoulders of people who have sacrificed themselves for you. He says, you are rich. You are spiritually rich. He says, you are spiritually kings. Because of these people who have sacrificed themselves on your behalf. I don't know how else you read verse 8. Any different. Paul says, you are spiritually rich. You are spiritually speaking kings. What we have in our lives, spiritually speaking, has everything to do with people down through church history to the present who have sacrificed themselves on your behalf because of God's grace. All even the ones that you've not really liked, even the ones that you've not really liked, even the ones that you don't see eye to eye with, even the ones that you don't just see every kid or toddle, they have added value to your life. Amen? Amen. Now, notice the second thing that the Corinthians forgot. Let's look at verses uh, 7-13 through very quickly. Uh, let's go on uh, the second part of verse 8 there. So you become kings and without us. How I wish that you really had become kings so, you might be kings so that we might be kings with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession. Like men condemned to die in the arena, we have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, but we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. Now, Paul's saying this. The reason why people are often critical of spiritual leaders 
is not only have they forgotten that everything that they've gotten, spiritually speaking, have come from people who have sacrificed themselves on their behalf, all the way down to the church history of the present, but number two, do remember the sacrifices of your spiritual leaders. Paul said this, that because of ministry, he went, he went hungry, he went hungry, he went thirsty, had to dress in rags, endure persecution and slander, literally feeling like garbage and refuse. The Apostle Paul also says elsewhere, that he was beaten and that he was whipped and he was shipwrecked and he was left as stoned to death. He did all of these things on behalf of other people to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, admittedly, 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 in the United States, I don't know very many Christian workers who experience these kinds of trials and hardships today. Not in the United States. But I do know people in third world countries that do. But many pastors, listen to this, many pastors and missionaries and evangelists and full-time Christian workers still face hardships and sacrifices that many of the people in the church do not understand and can't comprehend. It's just the way it is. You will never know what it means to be a pastor until you become a pastor. You'll never know what it means to be a missionary until you actually become a missionary. You'll never know what it means to be an evangelist until you become an evangelist. No one completely understands. No one has a clue. You just don't have a clue. You don't have... It would be like me trying to be a police officer. I don't understand what policemen do. I look on the outside, but I don't live a policeman's life. It would be like trying to fit my shoes into a, a guy that was one of those 24-hour on-the-call person that always, you know, uh, an, am, an ambulance driver in a major city responding every night, every hour to the stress of going to people and trying to rescue them. I don't have a clue. And so these people that the Apostle Paul was writing to, he said, I've sacrificed all these things and you just don't understand it. You don't have a clue what we've done. So do remember the sacrifices of those individuals uh, who are pastors and teachers and missionaries. Uh, I, di- I just want you to listen to this. If I had not been a pastor for 30 plus years, if I, don't, if I didn't rub shoulders with pastors in the church in Nazarene, in charismatic churches, I have pastor friends from all kinds of different stripes, mainline churches, uh, charismatic churches. If I didn't get Leadership Magazine, the magazine that goes out to 100,000 pastors, if I didn't talk to missionaries, I couldn't believe this. And you won't believe it either. But listen to this. This just kind of put things in perspective here. While, while I never have gone hungry, while I've never been deprived, while I've never have gone in rags, while, I, while I've never faced severe trials like these people, like the Apostle Paul was talking about, still, this kind of put things in perspective, what pastors go through even in the United States. Across denominational lines, a poll was taken. Uh, I think uh, 250,000 respondents across denominational lines. Eighty percent of pastors surveyed said, I believe that ministry has affected, uh, has affected their lives in some sort of negative way. Eighty percent. Some sort of negative way. Thirty-three percent said that ministry was an outright hazard to their family. Ninety percent felt that they were inadequately trained to meet the needs of the job. Seventy percent said they have lower self-esteem now than they were when they started out. And forty percent reported a serious conflict with a parishioner at least once a week. 
Who would ever have a clue? We don't broadcast that. We don't go around, woe is me, I'm a terrible pastor, you know, I'm having all these problems. No, we put our best face forward. But this is reality of the world we live in, and this is ministry. Now, uh, so do remember, do remember the sacrifices of spiritual leaders on your behalf. I, I want to close. Uh, I don't think I've shared this story publicly. I think I've shared it privately a time or two. I guess I just have to tell everything. I kind of want to edit some things out, and I've got a little bit of time, but I just can't edit it out. It's too good, and there's too much involved with it, but I'll try to be right to the point. You see, every pastor, uh, every pastor has a number of people who are their heroes. You know, read biographies of D.L. Moody and, and Phineas Berzee and, 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 and fellow pastors. The reason why is, just like you, you know, we get, we get uh, encouragement from models, from pastors that have done things over the years, been faithful despite the situation they find themselves in, and continue to experience God's grace and continue to get through the trials. You know, I don't know a single pastor that doesn't want to resign on Monday morning half the time. But by the time Tuesday rolls around, I usually start feeling pretty good again, you know, and, and uh and I, I, I haven't really felt burnout in ministry for a number of years. I did at one particular point, but no, it's been years since I felt that way personally. But there's one story that always reinvigorates me and it is very encouraging for me. I had a pastor friend that became a district superintendent. He had a wrestling he wanted to be a coach and a PE teacher. I, I can relate to that. I also was trained to be a coach and a PE teacher. And he wrestled with his calling in ministry, and finally he felt God was calling him to full-time ministry. And, you know, he went through all that stuff that pastors often go through. So he said, yes, prepared, got trained, and he ended up at the Lone Pine Church of Nazarene. How many of you have been through Lone Pine? Lone Pine? Been through Lone Pine? It's just a, it's just a little hole-in-the-wall place. And, and a number of years ago, I guess they did have more going on there. They had a plant, I think, that made some sort of glass products or something like that. But that was his first pastorate. But you've got to understand this guy. He loves the Lord, and he's very simple. He believes genius is making the complex simple. And so he began to minister to people and knocking doors, and he started with the kids and youth in that community. Pretty soon, that church grew to such an extent that the school district was calling the church and making sure that they weren't having a conflict of scheduling of activities. So after a number of years uh, loving on those people and helping the church grow there, he got a call to a church in San Luis Obispo. Totally different community. Can you imagine going from Lone Pine to San Luis Obispo. But it was right in the middle of the Jesus movement. And simple-minded Mill thought to himself, you know what? I'm going to go on that college campus and I'm going to get to know some of these college kids and I'm going to begin to minister to them. And that's what happened. And that, little, that church exploded. And on Sunday nights, Sunday nights, 
it was full of college kids. Standing room only. Simple. Just preached the most simple messages, but just absolutely loved people. Well, some district superintendent, his district superintendent got the idea, hey, you know, he's done so great here in these two churches and he's done wonderful here in San Luis Obispo and has this ministry of college education. Why don't we call him to the University Avenue Church in San Diego and Pasadena Nazarene College just bought a campus at Point Loma Nazarene University. And Mel will be a great fit with college kids there. And we'll just, we'll just fit him in there. And so they said, Mel, your, your job is to sell the church building and build a big campus church on the campus. The property has been given to the church. And during the week, weekday, the school, the school, the college, will use it for chapel services. Simple Mel. Never built a church before. Never realized what he'd be going, getting into. And he provided leadership, loved on those people. The church grew. They relocated the church. They built this beautiful building. And after that all happened, he got voted out of that church. He got voted out. He didn't fit in with the college crowd, the professors. He was too simple. They didn't like his stories. They didn't like his emphasis on loving God with their heart, body, mind, and soul, just loving other people. They wanted all the different theories of eschatology, heart theology, soteriology. They wanted all that plus more. And they wanted a guy that was a little more sophisticated. Simple male. He got voted out. Here he is. He's middle-aged. He has all of these successes. And the first time in his life, he hit a wall. A brick. Where am I going to go? What am I going to do? Two children, uh, one in college, one left at home. Talk about a crisis. A crisis of faith. crisis of trials. When he, tell, when he tells, uh, when, when, this is, when this is told, this is where he gets usually choked up. You can imagine felt like it was the end of everything for him. He's sitting at home and feeling sorry for himself looking at this particular passage of Scripture. And Paul saying, the refuse of the earth, garbage. He said, Lord, I'll do it for you. You've called me, I'll do it for you. Whatever you want. If you want me to be a truck driver, I'll be a truck driver. He got a call from a district superintendent in another district and said, Mel, we've got this great opportunity. I want you to come here. Did you know that that church grew to almost a thousand people? Just because of his simple messages of God's grace. And then he becomes such a well-known person because of what God did and what God, how God worked in his life that when the district superintendent resigned, Sipple Mill got elected as a district superintendent. 
God uses all kinds of people, all kinds of gifts, all kinds of circumstances. You just never know. Let's pray together.